You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, I'm Linda Sharkey, and thanks for joining another episode of Future Proof Workplace. Morag, unfortunately, uh, is out sick today, and she won't be joining us, and I hope she's feeling better. Uh, She's been doing a lot of traveling. You know, we started this show because we wrote the book, Future Proof Workplace, Six Strategies to Accelerate Talent Development, Reshape Your Culture, and Succeed with Purpose. And we really had seen these six strategies and themes that have emerged that are so different from the 20th century to the 21st century. And, you know, the more we engage in this show, the more we talk with gurus, leading thinkers, uh, clients, CEOs, we realize that the world is being disrupted in ways we never really uh, anticipated. And it's happening a whole lot faster than we never really anticipated. In fact, I was reading an article today about how healthcare and hospitals are going to be one of the most disrupted fields. And we're going to be driving down costs considerably, which is actually a good thing, where people can get healthcare in remote parts of the world that was never available before. So disruption is all around us. Which leads me to our guest today, Whitney Johnson. And I'm so excited to have Whitney. Uh, I met her when I have actually met her several times, but we hooked up again in uh, London at the Thinkers 50 event. She is one of the top Thinkers 50 uh, gurus in the world. She's one of Marshall Goldsmith's top 100 coaches. And I'm happy to say that He's appointed me to his next tranche of top 100 coaches, so I'm excited to be part of it. She has a new book coming out, uh, Disrupt Yourself, with Harvard um, with the Harvard Press. Um, she has a book on Build an A-Team, uh, How You Build an A-Team for Today's World. And there's just so many things I could say about Whitney. She's got a wonderful consulting practice. She's just a brilliant thinker and a great executive coach. So thanks, Whitney, for joining the show. Thank you, Linda. I am delighted to be here. Good, good. So uh, tell me, tell me about your latest book that's coming out. 
Well, let me set it up by telling you a story because I, I, because, you know, stories always tell everything better. Um, so uh, just about a week ago, I was, it was Monday morning, and one of my CEO clients called me to say that one of his key people had just left. And as we were talking, he said, you know, I know she wants a job closer to home. She's got five children. She's been driving an hour. This new job is five minutes away. But as she sat across the table from me, I couldn't help but thinking that she doesn't like working here and she actually doesn't like working for me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I don't think this experience is is atypical. I think we all want to be a great boss, but most of us worry that we're not. Right. And I know, I, I know I've definitely felt that way. And so here we are, we want to be a great boss. We want to be this place where people can bring their dreams to work. It's part of the reason, you know, why we wanted to be a manager or start a business. And, but now that we're like in it and we're trying to scale and we have product to ship and we find ourselves feeling like we need the people on our team to do what they've always done exactly where they are. And so we inadvertently become that boss. It's kind of the innovator's dilemma when it comes to people. And so in my opinion, that happens, but it doesn't need to happen. It, it just shouldn't be that way. And so what I've learned having been a stock analyst on Wall Street and co-founding an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the, uh, Harvard Business School is that this framework of disruption that we apply to products and services, and you were just talking about healthcare, it also applies and most importantly applies to people. Yeah. And so for the last five years, I've been researching and codifying this framework so that whether you're building a business or building a team or just trying to manage your life, you've got a structure to do this. And and so this book, the premise of it is that when we are willing to encourage, require, um, allow the people who work with us to disrupt themselves, when we're willing to let them learn and then leap and then repeat, they're going to be happy, they're going to be all in, and as a consequence, we're going to ship even more product And we're going to become talent magnets. People are going to want to work with us and they're going to want to work for us. And so this book is all about this learning curve. How do you optimize people on that learning curve in order to have a team that can be innovative and not get disrupted and how to manage people at the low end of the curve, the sweet spot of the curve, at the height of the curve, and then how to orchestrate those leaps so that they can continue to be innovative and therefore your company can continue to be innovative. Yeah, it's a great, great topic because everybody's struggling with that right now. How do we get innovation in the workplace? How do we keep it in this really disruptive workplace where it's not clear that people are going to be working for you more than two years or even more than a particular project that you've hired them for? And, and uh, you know, you're going to have to bring people in, uh, get them to be excited about what they do and then be willing to let them move on to whatever the next thing is, which is so counter to the way the workplace has existed. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, Linda, I have a theory about that is I think part of the reason we don't let people move on is that we subconsciously (laughs) hire people to be in a role forever. And when they do want to move on, we feel jilted. I mean, that's part of the reason why it was so hard for so long to people, for people to boomerang. Because when you think about a boomerang or like, logically, you would want someone who's been at your company, they've left, now they've gotten trained on someone else's dollar. You know that you can work with them because you worked with them before, and now they want to come back. Like, 
logically that makes all the sense in the world. And yet for many decades, people would not hire them back. And I think it's because it was like a boyfriend who felt jilted and they're like, no, you can't come back. But logically it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, it really does. And, and, you know, the fact of the matter is that hierarchies are not going to exist like they have in the past. And, uh, you know, people are going to have many, many careers. And you've really got to be, as you said, a talent magnet uh, to, to keep innovation going in your in your workplace. So, Whitney, tell me about, you know, the uh, how do you become somebody who attracts and innovates uh, innovative talent and keep the talent innovated? Yeah. So, um, so what I'd like you to do to kind of, to explain my ideas is everybody who's listening is to picture an S and, um, think of it, the S as a learning curve. So at the bottom of the learning curve, you've got people who are inexperienced and, um, and for the first six months, maybe a year on their job, they're not going to really know what they're doing. And that has some downside because we tend to want people to come in and be proficient immediately. So we can find ourselves getting a little bit impatient. But if we're willing to hire for potential and not for proficiency, people who are at the loan of the learning curve, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have domain expertise. It just means that they don't know how to do the job that they're going to do presently. What happens there is that they are going to start questioning everything that you're doing. And that can be kind of annoying if we're honest. It's annoying because it's like a three-year-old. Why didn't we do it like this? And why didn't we do it like that? And it feels a little bit threatening as well. Like, well, because that's how I do it. And so we feel this sense of like attack. But that is where so much gold can be mined because they're brand new and they're looking at it and they're saying, well, why don't we try this? And why don't we look at that? And so there's lots and lots of, of gold there if we're willing to entertain those questions. And so that's the people that are at the low end of the learning curve. And that's, that's the opportunity with those brand new people. And then your opportunity with people who are in that sweet spot, that S, that steep back of the curve, where they're actually quite competent, your opportunity with them is now that they're competent and they're really enjoying their work because they feel like they know what they're doing. They're feeling very confident. The opportunity there is to stretch them, to apply more friction, to say, okay, I know you're in the sweet spot, but I'm pretty sure we can get more out of you. And what's fascinating is that when they're in the sweet spot, people tend to be labeled as a high potential. And the research shows that sometimes we don't push high potentials because we're afraid they fail. Right. Let them potentially fail and push them and see what they're made of. And so that's your opportunity there, whereas you're pushing them and giving them opportunities where in constraints where they, they're continuing to have to figure out, how do I get myself out of this box? They're going to be innovative for different reasons, but they're also innovative. And then at the top end of the curve, you've got people who are masters and they're going to play a very different role, which is think of this S as the top of a mountain, this plateau, this vista to be able to see what's out there and and have this perspective that other people don't have. So they can be pace setters, they can push the low enders to, to excel, and they're willing to pass along that tribal memory and help people because they know, and this is absolutely critical that you as their boss, once they've reached the top of that curve, are going to not only help them identify a new curve 
to jump to, you're going to help make it happen. So they stay engaged too because they know there's something new coming um, coming for them and on the way. So that's how you manage the learning, whether you're at the low end and inexperienced, whether you're in the sweet spot and are engaged, or you're at the high end and are a master. Wow, that's I love that analogy. But like with all S's, there is a little curve down at the at the very top at that master spot. So absolutely. When do people start peaking and uh, maybe lose that sort of oomph and edge? Yeah. So based on our research, what we, and also based on our research and also mapping it against the 10,000 hour rule. So we've kind of triangulated there. Um, If you work only 40 hours a week, um, you are going to be at the low end of that learning curve between six months and a year. Um, depending, you know, there are variables that adjust it, but but a good rule of thumb is six months to a year. Then you're going to be in your sweet spot of that learning curve two to three years. And then you're going to be at the high end for um, six months to a year. So once a person's been in a role for three years, they're starting to reach that danger zone where you're like, they're a master, I'll just leave them alone. (laughs) Well, no, they're a master and they're getting bored and bored people leave or they get complacent, which is really bad for you. And in fact, based on our our research that we've done with the S-curve locator, we know that if you've got, if you need 15% at the low end, 15% of your people at the high end of that curve and 70% of your people in the sweet spot, when you look at that S-curve locator and you find that you've got 30% of your people at the high end of the S-curve, you know you're at risk. Like that is all you need to do is take the pulse of your workforce, too many people up there, you are at risk of disruption. And so you've got to figure out a way to get those people at the top to the bottom of a new curve so that you can re-engage them and have them have no idea what they're doing so that they will start to innovate. Yeah, well, two questions. That leads me to two questions. I love that. Um, So, you know, how do you deal with assessing people to know where they are in that S-curve? Yeah, Okay, so there are a couple of different ways you can do that. So you've got the quick rule of thumb, right? Of They've been in this role six months, they've been in this role two to three years, et cetera. Um, then what we do is with this diagnostic or tool or instrument that we have called the S-curve locator, um, you take that, you can you can administer that with a team, for example. And so actually, I'll give you an example because I think that you'll find this really interesting. Just a couple, uh, about a month ago, I went into a company that is in an industry where there's been a lot of disruption taking place. It's the media industry. And they had just gone through a massive reorganization. So a lot of people in a lot of new roles. So based on that, right, the assessment would have been, okay, well, we're going to have most of our people at the low end of the learning curve because you've got people in new roles, 30% maybe. Well, when the S-curve locator came back, we found that 70% were showing up in the sweet spot and 30% at the high end and no one at the low end. So, But then when we started to look at the data and the individual answers to the questions, we discovered that a lot of people were sheltering in place. Because when we asked questions like, I feel overwhelmed by what I'm doing, 20 to 30% of people were saying neutral. And neutral sometimes means 
not this, not that, but it usually means I'm really afraid and I'm not going to say what I really think. And so what we found, and, and so we said, okay, here's what the data at a high level says, but what we now know is that you a lot of you are actually at the low end, probably 30%. And if you'll own up to being at the low end, which is exactly where we need you to be in order yeah. to disrupt, then yeah. some really interesting innovation can happen. Yeah, that's really, really cool. You know, we're at breaks, uh, Whitney, and we're going to get back. I want to talk more about this S-curve locator. And so many companies are asking, and myself included, I'm, I'm death on some of the tools that emerged from the 20th century that, that companies need to really sort of dump and move into new thinking about this, like your S-curve locator, and see how that relates to how companies are thinking about assessing their talent in a different way from the nine box. So stay with us. We're going to talk about uh, more of the S-curve locator, and we're going to talk about how you use these things to really develop your talent going forward. Ever wondered if your career will last Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. So welcome back. Thanks for listening. I'm talking to Whitney Houston, who is a leading thinker in the area of leadership and building an A-team, her new book, which we're going to talk about when it releases and how you get a copy of it, but uh, also a well-known coach uh, and leadership consultant working with some of the best companies in the world. So Whitney, um, you know, I'm sure you know about the nine box that many companies use to assess talent and determine where their talent is and how they get, you know, raises and, you know, who gets promoted and all of that stuff. How do you see that working in relationship to this S-curve locator? Because I really love this concept of the S-curve locator. Linda, I'm not familiar with it. So why don't you talk about it briefly and let's just riff and see how it goes together. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's it's funny because so many companies use this, you know, 20, 70, 10, you know, who's the top 20% of your company, who's your stars, your, you know, your real innovators, your real change leaders. Uh, right. And then the rest are like the 70, 70% in the middle. And then who's at the bottom 10. And it's a nine box that many companies use. In fact, it was developed out of the general electric company. And, you know, the premise behind it is, you know, you find out who those top 20% of the people are, and those are the people that you kind of nurture and you bring forward. But in today's world, you know, that requires a fair amount of process and a fair amount of stability in your organization, which we're just not going to see anymore. And, you know, the question of really nurturing only the top 20% of your organization seems kind of bogus mm-hmm. when you have 100% of your organization that really needs to be at the top of their game. Right. So that, that's the difference. Okay. It seems to me that your S-curve assessment and locator 
is a way to put a different lens on the talent in the workforce. And that's what was intriguing to me. I'm sorry that I didn't mean to throw you off. No, I think it's really interesting. And it's so great. Thank you for um, talking through that at a very high level and something it sounds like you're intimately familiar with. So here, here are my thoughts. Um, I, part of, part of my premises is that Everybody has an S curve. Everybody, you know, every everyone's an S, right? You've got your big S's and little S's, but we all have an S. And so part of the reason I think sometimes people, you've got a top 20%, and you, you know, then you've got your 70 and your 10, is the 10, I would argue, are people who probably aren't working. They're just not working. They don't want to work, they're not working. And so, you know, you're always going to have a group of people in any organization that just don't really want to show up. Yeah. But I think that frequently the reason people that 70% or maybe, you know, 30 or 40 that you're just like, they're underperformers, they're not doing a good job. I think it's because they're on the wrong curve. Right. They're not in the right place right. for them because yeah. everybody wants to learn. Everybody wants to progress. We just do. It's We're humans. That's what we want. And so part of what happens though, and the reason we get on a wrong curve is that when you think about your strengths, because the strengths that we have are things that we do reflexively, like it's like breathing, we don't value them. And so when we apply for jobs, I think frequently we lead with what we do well and not with what we do best. And so we oftentimes get in the wrong role. And then we start to underperform. And one of the things I think a great boss does, a great leader does, is they identify, you know, this person's really talented, but I think they're in the wrong seat. And a great example of this actually is, um, is you probably watch the Super Bowl or you know people who watch the Super Bowl. Well, there's this technology that this fellow, John Cave, came up with um, to help the coaches talk to each other remotely during the Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, he came up with this um, in part because he had a boss, Michelle McKenna Doyle, who's the chief information officer at the NFL, who said, you know, I've got John building or not building, but managing all of the IT in our organizations. But what he's really good at is building things. And so she's like, I want to slot him to his strengths. I don't want him focusing on the payroll systems. This isn't the right place for him. But when she went to him and said, I want to move him, do you know what? He resisted. He didn't want to go because he felt like she was taking things away from him. So I think this plays out over and over again where we don't want to be slotted to our strengths because we're afraid of doing something that we do naturally well because we don't value it. And so that 60 or 70%, I think frequently people are just on the wrong curve. It's not that they are inherently underperformers or not hard workers. They're not in the right seat. No, and I totally agree with you. And I think that that's, in my mind, you know, just to riff a little bit more on this is, you know, it was an old model that companies used in the belief that it was the top 20% of any organization that brought it forward. But I don't know that today's day and age, we have the luxury of only looking at the top 20%. And, you know, as you focus just there, you know, you're angering all these other people that as you say, could be in the wrong spot or are just not working to their fullest potential or don't realize that they're not working to their fullest potential. And you're missing a lot of capability. Right. Absolutely. You're leaving so much capability on the table just because 
they don't value it or you don't value it or you haven't persuaded them that you value it, whatever it is. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, unused capacity, human yeah. capacity. And, and you can't do that in today's day and age, especially if you've got to be, you know, if you've got to be nimble and you got to work fast. Exactly. Exactly. You can, but then you're going to slip behind, right? right? Exactly. Exactly. So tell me, what are the things that leaders beyond the S-curve locator? And I know, when is the book coming out, Whitney? May 1st. Ooh, pretty soon. Are you excited? Um, yes, I'm so excited. This is, it's super fun right now because you get to just talk about this and and just tell people about it and evangelize the ideas. So it's, it's, you know, for some people, they don't really enjoy this process or the part of launching the book, but I think it's really, really fun. Yeah. Well, it's a tough part of any book, you know, but you, you've got to do it and you do it very well. I might say, I must say. So, so, so give me, give us some hints of, of how, what the managers do. So you've got the S curve locator, but what do leaders do to make sure that they're keeping that a team? Mm-hmm. So, so I guess let, let me just talk through kind of the different phases of the curve to just yeah. work through that. So I, I would say, you know, for example, with people that are at the low end of the learning curve, um, a couple of tips there. One would be is to have a plan, and you and I have touched on this already, is to recognize that you've got this constraint that's baked in from the start and that this person will not be there forever. Right. Uh, the second thing, the second tip is to um, let them do their job and not micromanage. There's a wonderful story um, told of a of an engineer, high performer at Boeing, and he was promoted from individual contributor to manager. And one of his engineers then, after a few months, says, I'm quitting. And this manager's like, why? Why are you quitting? You're really good. And he says, well, because you, my manager, micromanaged me. You've made 14 changes to my work. Your job is not to do my job. Your job is to help me understand the bigger picture, to plug me into the network, to advocate for me. Well, the employee still quit, but the manager, (laughs) well, he learned his lesson. It was young Alan Mulally who went on to become the CEO of Ford and one of the best CEOs of our time. So even Alan Mulally, this brilliant, brilliant manager was at one point a micromanager. Yeah. So that, um, let me see, look at my notes. Oh, and then the last thing obviously is that you want to be patient, um, with that person because they're going to ask lots of questions. And if they're doing what you need them to do, sort of the offset is they don't know what they're doing, but the offsetting mechanism there is that they ask questions that can help you innovate. So, but be patient. So that's the low end of the curve. The middle of the curve, the way you manage them is you, allow them to be in the sweet spot. You stretch them. You um, And you also don't ignore them because when people are working hard and everything's going right, it's, it's, an, it's, it's our tendency to ignore them. They're not the problem child, so don't make them the problem child. And quick story there is um, a, a woman named Alana Golan. She's, she was a fighter pilot in the Israeli army and she goes to work at Intel. And so on the one hand, she's kind of at the low end of the curve, but on the other hand, she's in the sweet spot. I mean, she's been a fighter pilot teaching other fighter pilots. And so she goes to Intel, she's in Israel. Her boss, Ziad Hana, comes to her and says, all right, we've got to figure out 
what technology is going to do, find some problems that need to be solved. Well, she discovers that the verification tools that make sure that the software is doing what it's supposed to do are going to quickly be out of date. So he sends her off to Sweden. She finds a, a company that can they can potentially work with and modify modify the software comes back, she prototypes it, eventually Intel buys the software that they use for decades. So it was a risk to give her the stretch assignment, right? Because she's kind of at the low end sweet spot of the curve, but he mitigated it by mentoring, but he stretched her. And now it's been like 15, 20 years. He's her best, one of her best bosses ever. So Uh that's the low end. And then at the high end of the curve, you wanted to be pace setters, but the best, absolute best way is to number one, Once people get to the high end of the curve, let them know that you will advocate on their behalf for them to do something new, provided that they keep their contract to you of working hard in the role that they have. And sometimes as a manager, the way you manage them is say, I know you think that you're in the sweet spot and you're really enjoying this plateau thing right here, but I need to push you off because we're not getting the most out of you. So I'm going to help you jump to a new curve. You got to trust me. But if you'll jump, it's going to be great for you and it's going to be great for the company. Yeah. Wow. That That's so good. And it's so difficult for leaders to do that. We're at another break, Whitney. So hang in with us. And I want to talk to you more about your experience with uh, the 100 coaches and uh, some advice. And then I want to talk to you about your first book. I think that's real. I mean, it did fabulously. And uh You know, I want to talk to you about that experience. Great. Fantastic. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Hi, welcome back. I'm talking to Whitney Johnson, who is just a leading thinker of 50, a leading guru in the area of development, leadership development, thinking about your teams and how you make sure you have and build an A-team for your organization. Um, So tell me, Whitney, it's hard. You know, a lot of times I have leaders that will say, and and, and, I mean, you hit on it earlier. Um, The really best leaders are the ones that help people working for them find their next best opportunity. I think Reid Hoffman, you know, from LinkedIn, uh, who wrote the book, uh, Alliances, talked about that a lot in that particularly in today's day and age when people are not going to be staying with you forever. Um, they may only be with you for three years. And how do you help them and how do you contract with them to find their next best opportunity? And I find having worked with managers and fortune 10 companies, it's very hard to get them to let go of somebody. So how do you do that? Hmm. Well, I, I think I think the reason that people have a hard time letting them go is that their their sense of ego starts to get involved, and that sense of that somehow they made that person 
person. And if they let them go, they've betrayed them. I think there's some element of that for a lot of people. I think there's some element of concern about hitting the next quarter's numbers. Having been a Wall Street sell side analyst, I know because I was one of those people saying you're missing your numbers. So I get that. Um, But I think that one of the ways that we have to do it and we get them to change is to make it scarier not to change than than it is to change. Um, to make it so that people, you know, you say to them, look, if you don't change, if you don't let your people jump to a new curve, you are going to lose your high potentials. And if you lose your high potential, and, and even if you don't lose your high potentials, they are going to get complacent. And complacent right. people don't innovate. And people that don't innovate lose, lose their competitive edge and they get disrupted. And so I think that if you can help people understand that, I think it makes a a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I totally agree with that, but I think, you know, the real, um, underlying issue is this, I've really finally got somebody who's really great. And if I let them go and I don't help, you know, and if I don't keep them locked in with me, I'm not going to be able to keep doing what I need to do right. and, and make my numbers. But the truth of the matter is that they walk with their feet anyway. And if they start getting bored and complacent, if they're really innovators, they, they, they're going to go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting about that, Linda. And I, and I, fascinatingly enough, I mean, I have, I have this, you know, on my team, right. I mean, I have this playing out on my team and it's, it's so funny how, when you talk about these kinds of things where you're like, okay, I think I better walk my talk here. And, and so one of the things I'm doing and, you know, as it plays out and having all this sort of array of emotions is to basically have, have a contract contract in the sense of a verbal agreement of, okay, in X amount of time in six months time, you know, I know you're at the top of the curve and I will help you jump to that new curve. But right now, but as part of that, I need you right now, right where you are doing what you've always done in order for me to do that. The other thing I think is really important and valuable. If you can say to that person is, okay, this is especially if you're they're working for you full time is I need you to go out and find a replacement because if you can find someone to do your job then you're not leaving me in the lurch and then it makes it a lot easier for me to help you go do something new and what about even just you as a leader looking at that sweet spot crowd that needs to get pushed to the next level and you shouldn't don't you think you should be um, always knowing the capability of your team and who really can rise up to that next sort of, uh, plateau. Right, right. Exactly. And, and when that person jumps and does something new, then it gives the people who are in the sweet spot, the opportunity to step up even more. And we've all seen it, right. And you've probably had this experience in your career. And I have too, where we were the number two and yeah. we were good, but we weren't great until it was our show. And there is just something, something about human nature that way. And, and we don't actually know what people are capable of until we say you Tap them, go. Right, right. And then give them to to use uh, Alan Mullaly's, um, you know, and don't micromanage them. Let them exactly. Buy, <laughs> you know, it would it'd be really great, which leads me because I know Alan is doing a session just uh, soon uh, for the top, uh, you know, for Marshall's top 100 coaches. So what's that experience been like? Which, by the way, I think it's just so great. I love that Marshall's doing this and I love that you're in the first cohort. 
Yeah. So, um, so just a quick overview of what it is. So Marshall yes. Goldsmith, so uh, you've, you've had him on your show, right? So everybody yes. knows who he is. Okay. Got it. So he decided that he, you know, he's in his late sixties, he wanted to pay it forward. And so he came up with this idea actually after sitting through a session with Aisha Bursell, who's a, a designer, a product designer, um, that he was going to pay it forward by teaching and selecting a group of coaches um, to teach them everything he knows. And he started thinking, I'm just going to pick 15 people and I'm going to pay it forward. And then they can at some point in their career pay it forward. But there were so many applicants, um, you know, I think it's up to 14,000 now. He said, I'm going to expand it to 30 and then it was a hundred. And to answer your question of what it's like, it's really been a terrific experience for me. I would say initially I thought, okay, I definitely want to learn from Marshall and I want to learn from the cohort of people who are going to be learning from Marshall. So it's a kind of a both and. But the thing that's been astonishing to me is is how generous he is. Yeah. And what and and how he is a person who not not only mentors, but he sponsors. And to me, there's a difference and there's an important difference because a mentor is someone who gives you advice and says, look at this and try doing it that way. But a sponsor in my book is a person who opens doors for you that you could not otherwise open. And Marshall does that so much, so consistently. It's just part of his DNA. And I have been incredibly, I mean, you know, in our our nightly prayers as a family, we're like, thank you, God, for Marshall Goldsmith. I mean, he's just that generous. And so I think that um, if we had, you know, not, in fact, I have a piece right now that I'm just now, I'm about to publish with Harvard Business Review on the digital, which is, you know, there are more than a few good men. We, there's been a lot of backlash, I think, out there. And I know I'm digressing just a little bit, but about, you know, there are all these bad, bad, bad men out there. And I'm like, yeah, there are some bad men. There are some bad eggs, but there are some really good men. And I think Marshall's really a great template for what that if you want to sponsor and if you want to bring up the next generation he's certainly a great prototype and and um example of of how to do that you know i've known marshall for over 20 years and i brought him into uh, ge actually before he wrote what got you here won't get you there which of course is a seminal book at this point on on coaching and uh you know, it, it, that is so true about him. He has been a sponsor, a mentor, and, you know, he's really helped me through my entire career. And I I just, and, and you know, to the extent that I can with him, I mean, he helped us on our book, Future Proof Workplace, doing mm-hmm. videos on it. And it was just phenomenal. And I'm so excited because I'm in that next tranche that he's kicking off of uh, 100 coaches. And I'm You're just- You're going to love it. You're going to yeah. love it. It's going to be, you'll love it. That's 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 really what I think. But you've had some great people who have. And to your point, I've worked for some really great men. And yeah, there's some slime balls out there. But uh, the men that I've worked with and worked for have really helped my career and not in the, um, you know, in any kind of sexist way and really a give back way. And I'm thinking of your relationship with Clayton Christensen, you know, the innovator's dilemma. What a, what a wonderful right. guy he is. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, um, I had first read, um, the innovator's dilemma when I was working on wall street and yeah. this is like 2004. Yep. And when I read it, I was like, 
oh my goodness, this explains. So I was um, covering emerging markets telecom. And so I was covering a company called America Mova, which is like the third or fourth largest cellular company in the world. And every single quarter, they were beating my numbers, like over and over and over and over again. I'm like, what is going on? Because I thought I was being aggressive and they were still beating my numbers. And when I read The Innovator's Dilemma, I'm like, oh, that's what's going on. They're disrupting tell um, fixed line telecom. And yeah. so that was really, um, that was an amazing, you know, epiphany for me. And so, um, when I left wall, oh, so sorry, before I left wall street, I had this other, I think even bigger aha, which is that it's not the companies that are doing the disrupting. It's the people that this framework applies to the individual. And yeah. so when I left wall street, I was doing all this entrepreneurial stuff. And I think that somewhere in the back of my mind, I wanted to work with him, even though I wasn't explicit about it, because when I left, I did not take any of my financial models with me. Like I knew I was done. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. And so when I had, I was, I was doing a bunch of, um, nonprofit work with him actually through our church. And so when he wanted to launch a fund investing, um, he knew obviously disruption, but he didn't know anything about investing. His son who was just getting out of business school, didn't know anything. And so I joined him as a, as a founding partner of Rose Park Advisors, which I've since sold my stake in that. But, um, he is such a good man. He's such a, he's such a brilliant man. Um, he's very humble and, 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 and so doggedly determined. I mean, I, I think you probably know, like in the course of that five years or six or seven years when I was working with him, he had a stroke, he had cancer, he had a heart attack. I no. mean, like incredible. And yet he's still like doing amazing things. And so yeah. he's, and, and I've been very grateful to him in terms of how he sponsors very differently than Marshall does. Yeah. But in his own way, he's also been a wonderful sponsor. Yeah. You know, I've only met him a couple of times and it was obviously around when his book came out and we used some of his concepts at GE as we were trying to go digital and went around the world, you know, with workshops on, you know, disruptyourbusiness.com, you know, to kind of really take technology to the next level. And that really came out of his thinking, honestly, but he just, what a, what a great treat to work with him and with Marshall. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. So, so Tell me what um, what are some the three things that you would like people on this show to take away uh, from your teaching, your thinking about leadership um, that they can actualize tomorrow? Mm. Great question. Okay, so I'm going to start with um, the first one. So. So you asked me uh, before the break to talk a little bit about my first or my prior book called Disrupt Yourself, which, um, again, if you think about build an A-team, that's for you and your team and how you manage people. It's kind of the 10,000-foot view. How do you manage all your mini S's? But um, Disrupt Yourself is how do you take this framework and apply it to you? And there are seven levers of change that you can apply so that you can disrupt yourself. And so in terms of some tactical suggestions I would make, the first would be, um, number one, to be willing to play where others aren't playing. So if you look at the theory of disruption, the odds of success are six times higher And the revenue opportunity is 20 times greater when you pursue a disruptive course. And yet in our 
businesses with products and services, but I'm going to talk about us as individuals right now, we tend to over and again take on competitive risk. When we're looking for a job, for example, um, we think we look on LinkedIn and we see a job posting and there's 50 people applying for it. And we're like, I hope I can compete and get that job. And so you might get it, but you know, there's 50 other people or 49 other people. Well, market risk, where your odds of success actually go up, where you're playing where others aren't playing, looks like you identify a problem that needs to be solved inside of an, an organization. And you don't know if there's a job because it's probably going to have to be created. But if you can persuade people to create that job, you're going to get it, or at least the odds are much, much higher that you're going to get it. And I, uh, so, so that's the first tip. And I can tell you a story around that if you want to, but that's where I would start. Is look- We're coming up to the end of the show. So sure. we- okay. So I'll, I'll go quickly. Okay. okay. So number tip number one, take on market risk, um, find ways to play where no one else is playing. Tip number two, think about what your strengths are. And the way I want you to think about that is listen to the compliments that you get and then write them down. People tend to deflect those compliments. If you write down the compliments that you're getting, then ask yourself, how am I using these compliments or these strengths that I have? How am I leveraging them to do my work every day? And if I'm not leveraging them, then I might be in the wrong job or on the wrong curve. And step number three, I would say is as you're going about your work and business, if you feel scared and if you feel lonely, then you're on the right path to disruption because disruption is by definition scary and lonely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I often feel scared. <laughs> like, oh my God, how am I, or oh my gosh, how, how am I going to do this? So Whitney, how do people get a hold of you? Because you do a lot of coaching with leaders to help them think through some of this stuff, right? So how Absolutely. Do yeah. So the best way to reach out to me is, um, is to, uh, my email address is wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Um, right now, if you go to my website, whitneyjohnson.com backslash a team, you can download the first chapter of my book. Um, if you do backslash diagnostic, you can actually take the S curve locator and see okay. where you are on your current learning curve. And if it's time to disrupt yourself. Wow, how very cool. Whitney, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really, really loved it. I love seeing you in London. I hope I see you again soon. And um, thank you so much for taking the time. And how do people get a hold of it? Can they sign up now for your new book? I hope they do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can um, go on to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or CEO Read and, and order the book. Yeah, I'm getting uh, I'm getting my copy. And next time I see you, you're going to need to sign up. <laughs> Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me, Linda. Yeah. Thank you so much, Whitney, for joining the show. And stay with us next week. We're going to be talking about more, how you continue to think about and future-proof and act on making sure that you're staying on top of the S-curve so that you can continue to grow your career and thrive. Thanks for joining Future Proof Workplace. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.